we need to be reminded that we are God's children. And I'm thankful for those songs this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, gracious Lord, loving Father, before You we come, and and indeed, Father, we do confess and admit that we are but children before You. That uh, Your ways are not our ways, neither are Your thoughts our thoughts. And so we come to be instructed. We come to sit at the feet of Jesus and to have Him teach us, to have Him disciple us, to have Him lead us. Lord, may indeed You give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey. Lord, give us minds to understand. Show us Your will, Your Word, and Your work. Lord, help us to praise You, to love You, to trust You, to obey You. Lord, help us to be Your children indeed. Lead us after Christ. In Him we pray. Amen. Well, open your Bibles uh, to our text for this series, uh, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. As just a brief recap of what we've looked at thus far here in this text, uh, verses 16 and 17, we saw how Jesus' disciples were prepared to make disciples. And then in verse 18, Jesus instructed them, and by extension us, that because of who He is and what He has done, we are authorized to make disciples. And having completed these two preliminaries, that is, drawing up the plans, uh, receiving the permit, Christ now launches into His divine building project, that is, the building of the kingdom of God. And having considered these important precursors, we will today learn that as Christ's followers, we are commissioned to make disciples. So let's read our text, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And as Brother Glenn has said, this is the passage which we refer to as the Great Commission. Verses 19 and 20, which are the verses which we'll begin looking at today, is the actual text, is the actual commission, the commission itself. And why do we call this, though, the Great Commission? Well, it's because it's God's mission. This is Jesus' mission. This is the Holy Spirit's mission. 
It's called the Great Commission because of the Trinity. It's called the Great Commission because this is the mission which Christ gave to His church. It's the Great Commission because we are working together with God to accomplish His mission. It's the Great Commission because it is a global mission. It isn't just to a particular group or region or time, but it's to all men in all locations throughout all time. And we can only be commissioned if we have first received admission and subsequently placed ourselves in submission to Christ's authority. If you want to discuss permission, that is, personal freedom and the will of God, then just look at verse 19 and ask yourself, is what I want to do or what I feel called to do, is it permitted by this command? Or maybe, is my desire subordinate to this command, this mission? Will this be antithetical to the mission? Will it be contrary to the mission? Does this support the mission? And there's actually very great freedom in these verses. Christ simply gives us His intent that He wants followers everywhere. Everywhere, in every place. He doesn't go down laying out specific, detailed, even ridiculously detailed instructions on how to complete this mission. He actually calls us to think. He calls us to exercise faith. He knows that His Spirit will work inside His followers, prompting them to action. And and when there are questions, this same Spirit He will direct us to the Word. He will direct us to Christ. He also intercedes for us in prayer as we we seek for further instructions and guidance. When there are deficiencies, the Spirit is there to meet those needs, whether it is a deficiency in supply or in information. He is there. So it is a great commission. And one final overarching thought before we dig in here is that this is termed the Great Commission because it is the mission of God. And as the mission, we ought to expect to find this elsewhere. And most certainly we do. And I'm just going to give one example. And that is, remember, Jesus is called the second Adam. And in that, He is the head of a new humanity. And just as God commissioned the first Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and He took that man and He placed him in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. Well, so now, this second Adam, who unlike the first, the second Adam was faithful in his role. And so now he leads his progeny as he recommissions man to this initial task. So as we 
begin to explore these verses here. And today we're going to specifically look at the first half of verse 19. The go therefore and make disciples. As we begin to dig here, we need to consider some terms and some definitions. And the ones that I'm going to present to you, it's not a comprehensive dictionary. Um, but it does include some prominent words uh, that are related to mission to help us better understand what exactly is being said here and laid out for us, not only, not only in these two verses, but in the larger scheme of God's purpose in His salvation of man in Christ. For, remember, He will save His people from their sins, which was declared to Mary in the early portions of this book of Matthew, as why Jesus was even going to be given that name, Jesus. Well, I need to give a disclaimer here that these are, these are my definitions. These are Philip's definitions, not Webster's. So, mission. The goal or objective of an individual or organization. The goal or objective. Uh, it, is, it is that towards which a goal, a person, or an individual, a group, they aim towards or they move towards. Um, it is, this is important, it is the what. It is not the why. And it typically doesn't include the how. If it does, it's involved with generalities rather than specifics. Because a mission statement needs to be concise and easily understood. Mission. So then there's admission, and that is to move towards the mission of another. And if you, an example of that would be an admission to a school, the admissions process. You are admitting, you are applying to receive admission to advance towards a particular goal. You're moving towards it. Submission, to come under the mission of another. And the perfect example of this is in the, the family, where the wife is supposed to be under the mission of the man. Tend the garden and keep it, Adam. But you can't do it alone. You need some help. Here is a woman to help you along in this mission, a sub-mission. Co-missioned. To be joined together with another for a same mission. Co-mission. Intermission. A period of time between missions. And I, I don't think that this exists in the broad scope of Christianity. Now, depending on your, your hermeneutic, you might say the intertestamental period was an intermission. But, but I think broad scope, broadly speaking, this doesn't exist. But it does happen in micro within individual lives, within individual churches even. Dismission, that is the removal from service. And this is done by Christ via His church. This is the act of church discipline. It's similar to decommission, but that is only done by Christ Himself. Permission by or through the agency of the mission, by or through the means of the mission. It's an authorization to do something. Uh, in other words, if it's not in line with the mission, it's not allowed. 
the mission defines what you can and cannot do. So those are just some of my definitions to help us wrap our minds around this great commission. So when he says to his disciples here, go, go, wow, what a small word, but what a powerful word. These are some of the thoughts that came to my mind as I looked at this word go. It's motivational, dynamic, aggressive, directional, active, exclamatory, involved, invested, bold, deployable, operational, intentional, volitional, authoritative, not complacent, requires movement, assumes consciousness, requires life, and demands action. What a powerful command. Like most people, I was initially sucked into this word go, and I emphasized it. But here's the deal. This isn't the main verb in the text. It's a verb, but it's a passive one. In English, this would be better translated, while you are going. While you are going, make disciples. And this throws a completely different light on the subject. This now assumes that the disciples will be going while you're going. It is their responsibility. It is their duty. It is their drive. So if we find ourselves not going, then it's fair to question, are we His disciples? And if we are, but we aren't going, if we are His disciples, but we aren't going, then we must ask the question, why not? Why am I not going? So think about go in this way. And I want to read a a familiar passage to us uh, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I think that this gives sense of the word go. Deuteronomy 6, this is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And I think verse 7 really, really helps us out here Uh, For I think this is what is meant by the word go. And that is, it is an all-encompassing lifestyle. There is not a time in which this is not being applied in verse 7. It encompasses all of your life. So you see, this great commission is not a new concept. The Shema begins with here. Here, that is, it's a gospel call. Listen up. Then it says, oh Israel, it's a specific gospel call to the elect. And then catch this, it says, the Lord. And the first thing that is emphasized, the first thing that is brought to life within the dead heart is the person of Christ. 
It is the Lord. And verse 5, it tells us of a heart change, of a desire change. And the process doesn't end here. Rather, it begins and it continues throughout all of life unto death. But this isn't just a process between me and God. No, it is not only commanded, but it is expected that these words and teachings, these words and teachings of Jesus, be emphasized and reiterated to others. And most specifically, beginning with those in closest proximity to us. You shall teach them diligently to who? To your sons. Brothers and sisters, we need to reevaluate our definition of missionary. The consistent message of the Word of God is that every child of God is a missionary. And if you take Scripture seriously, if you take your relationship with Christ seriously, if you take your baptism seriously, then you should constantly be looking for opportunities to teach, to preach, to share, to serve, to witness, to worship, to fellowship, to evangelize, to mentor, to assist. You will work harder. You will work more diligently, more efficiently, more sincerely. You will love more deeply and passionately and completely. Even even the appearance of your home and property can speak to the glory and the authority of God. Because mowing your lawn can be an act of idolatry. Or it can be an act of worship and communion with the one true God. Go ahead and preach to the grass. It's okay. But remember to love and disciple your son in the process. The earth will be renewed, but only sinners are saved. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Well, of whom is this speaking? Who is Jesus speaking to here? Well, His disciples. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee. He is speaking to His disciples. And as one author put it, you can't make disciples without being one. And remember what we said a couple weeks ago by um, Sinclair Ferguson and Francis Schaeffer that church members ought to be regenerated. And churches should be made up of Christians. Well, let's take this a step further and listen to what the late Harry Reader had to say. He says, A church will not be a discipling church unless it is first a disciplined church. And I think there's a couple aspects to that. First, I think that a disciplined church is a corrected church. Disciplined, admonished, corrected chastised. A person or church who is corrected is corrected both internally, that is by conviction of the Word by the Spirit, and externally by church discipline or church 
member relations and exhortation. For if ye are not chastened, ye are bastards and not sons. Jesus Christ is the head of His church. And He does have authority over her. And if need be, will punish her members, both communally through discipline or dismission, or corporally if needed, that is, through death or decommission. So that's one aspect of a disciplined church, is a corrected church. A church who is discipling is corrected, but she's also controlled. And she's controlled by the Spirit or Spirit-led. And this is an internal discipline because self-control is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it's curious to note that, that when some who argue um, that an individual or a church should be Spirit-led, what they often mean is non-structured or loosey-goosey. And they use words such as genuine or authentic or spontaneous or heartfelt. And, and those words in and of themselves, they're not inaccurate, um, but they're being used in a deceptive manner. For whenever you see the Spirit of God at work in the Scriptures, He is actually bringing order into chaos, or rather, He's bringing chaos into order. He's bringing it into subjection. He subdues the unruly and He conforms them to His will. Genesis 1-2 is a perfect example of this. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. The raging waters. Now, this doesn't mean that spontaneity is bad. Of course this means that our, our worship should be genuine and authentic. It should actually be who we are. But even spontaneity needs to be ordered. And that's, Paul speaks to that in 1 Corinthians, I think, 14. Because otherwise, what you end up with is every man doing what is right in his own eyes. So we are controlled and corrected by the Word and the Spirit. So if a church wants to be a discipling church, she first needs to be a disciplined church. And if a church is to be effective in making disciples, she needs to have these two aspects true of her, that she's corrected and that she's controlled. And it's the same principle as starting with yourself, then your children, then your neighbors, then your community. And, and actually, um, in the, some of the very last words that Jesus spoke, before His ascension, He says in, in uh, the first chapter of Acts, "...but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and get this, and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth." It is a progressive spread. Now, some of these things can be done. They ought to be done simultaneously or on parallel tracks. But some things must 
come first. Because if you don't have your own heart in order, how can you bring your house in order? If you don't have your house in order, how can you bring the church of God in order? And this is why Scripture lays out the qualifications for church leadership so clearly. And it emphasizes the stability of the household as a marker of maturity and leadership ability. This is why, quite frankly, in the past, I refused to allow myself to be appointed as elder or pastor because neither I nor my family was ready. It is imperative, brothers and sisters, that we believe the Word of God and submit ourselves to it. Are you burning? Are you burning with passion and desire and zeal to drive and to make disciples? Hey, praise the Lord. Do you not have this drive? Then pray to the Lord. Start with yourself. Discipline yourself. You can't make disciples if you aren't one. And if you aren't following Christ, don't expect others to follow you. After that, disciple your children. Discipline your children. Scripture gives us example after example after example of church leaders whose home life was not only less than desirable, but was a wreck. But recognize also that we can't justify a refusal to evangelize, a refusal to disciple or to witness by simply saying, well, you know, my calling is to my family. That may be true. But, but you are called to preach the gospel to the heathen in your home. You are called to teach them the way that Jesus taught His followers. You are called to set an example for your family. Or, or maybe you're approaching this, this commission from Christ in this way. Uh, maybe you're scooting away from it because, by saying that God's not called me to be a teacher or an evangelist. You know what? That also may be literally true. It may be true in one sense, but remember that the Great Commission deals with our entire lifestyle, not just our words, not just our roles within the church. Because the indwelling Spirit and His fruit will be evident in your life. He will be evident in your thoughts, in your speech, in your actions. Remember what Peter said to believing wives that had unbelieving husbands? He said, if, even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, they may be one without a word by the behavior. So there actually are certain circumstances and occasions in which disciple-making can happen without saying anything. So this leads us to two things. What is a disciple? Is a disciple or who is a disciple? That's one question. And the second question is, what does it mean to make disciples? Or how do we make disciples? Before we answer the second question, let's first attempt to define or to describe a disciple. In verse 16 here, the word disciples is the Greek noun metheitis. 
And simply put, it means a learner, a pupil, a student. And here in verse 19, the word which the King James renders teach, teach all nations, is the verb form of this noun, that is, matheteu. What, and that's why most uh, versions translate this, instead of teach, to make disciples. Because it's a verb usage of that initial noun in disciple. So let's just consider the usage of that one noun, matheteus, or disciple. In the New Testament, because it's Greek, is used 268 times. Now, you can rest assured that I'm not going to go through all 268 uses of this in the New Testament. We're just going to look at the book of Matthew, and I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to shorten it to just the first half of Matthew. So, in Matthew it's used 74 times. The first usage is in chapter 5, verse 1, and the final usage of this word is found here in verse 16 of 28. And very quickly scanning through these, we are instructed who a disciple is and what he does. So, all of these are taken from beginning in chapter 5 of Matthew, I think through chapter 14. Disciples belong to Jesus, come to Jesus, taught by Jesus, corrected by Jesus, follow Jesus, saved by Jesus, eat with Jesus, questioned about Jesus, pray to Jesus, summoned by Jesus, numbered by Jesus, commanded by Jesus, sent by Jesus, in the family of Jesus. They ask questions of and seek to learn from Jesus. They demand answers from Jesus. They even attempt to instruct and influence Jesus. They work and serve others for Jesus, directed by Jesus and are troubled by Jesus. And again, I could keep going. This is just through the first half of Matthew. But did you recognize the commonality? A disciple is identified and defined by his relationship to Jesus. So whenever a disciple or a group of disciples goes and makes other disciples, all of these and the other 250 aspects of discipleship will be present and evidenced. And here we need to make or to note that there is a very marked difference between a disciple and a proselyte. Proselyte is anglicized from a Greek word, proselytos. And it's only used four times in the New Testament. It simply means an arriver. Someone who's arrived from somewhere far away. Um, it's typically used to mean a convert to Judaism. But the basic difference is this. A proselyte is simply a recent convert. But a disciple is a student he is a learner. He is a pupil. Now, I do think that there's a point in which these two meet. But the general term for a follower of Christ is not proselyte. It's disciple. Meaning, you just can't convert and be good to go. Rather, 
No, Jesus and following Jesus is a lifelong pursuit. Remember, there is no distinction between, between Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord. We are called to continually be believing and learning and growing and maturing and changing. We aren't called to simply change labels, i.e., well, he used to be a Jew, but now he's a Christian. He didn't just convert from Judaism to Christianity. And this is why that the author of Hebrews had such difficult and harsh words in his letter to, to the infants in Christ because they ought to have progressed to the point of themselves being teachers. But instead, they were in need of elementary teaching. So what does it mean to make disciples? He says, go and make disciples. Or how do we make disciples? Well, we won't really get to that how question until next week. So the remainder of today will be spent in answering the question, what does it mean to make disciples? And first we need to recognize quite emphatically and explicitly that neither you nor I can save anyone, not even ourselves. So to make a disciple doesn't mean that we save someone because there is but one way to the Father and that is through the Son. He will save His people from their sins. Or in the words of the hymn, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. So that's the very first thing that we need to mark. Second, discipleship cannot and must not be equated with evangelism. As for man's involvement, and as far as you and I are, are concerned and, and engaging within this disciple-making process... Evangelism is just the beginning of this task. Remember what we said about proselyte and disciple? Uh, one fellow said this, the process only begins with the proclamation of Scripture. Now, earlier I referenced Christ as the second Adam and how this is a reinstituting of tend the garden and keep it. Well, as the second Adam... Christ intends to fulfill all of God's commands, including be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If there are no children, is there a relationship? Maybe. Has there ever been a union? Perhaps. Remember that Isaiah was given a ministry in which he was told that his audience wouldn't hear. They wouldn't bear fruit. Instead, they would bear judgment. Could it be that the Lord has closed her womb? Yeah. Could it be that there is a season that is specifically set aside for prayer? Certainly. But if the bride of Christ refuses to bear children for her husband, what is she saying? I think she's saying she has another lover. But making a disciple 
is different than making a baby. If a church evangelizes but doesn't make disciples, she's birthing children, but she isn't rearing them. She's filling the earth, she's bearing children, but she isn't taking responsibility for them. And what you end up with then is a bunch of orphans who are indefinitely children. They aren't disciplined. They aren't stable. They have a wrong view of the world and they are a burden on society rather than a blessing to it. When the church isn't busy in her domain, the idleness doesn't remain there. No, the void and the unproductivity is felt in the other institutions of God, in the family and in the state. Third, discipleship cannot and must not be equated with mentoring. If we boil this commission down to evangelism and mentoring, and the church actually practiced it, man, then we'd have an amazing impact upon individuals and society at large. And you know, just consider the stabilizing effect that a biblically ordered family has. Even if all members are unbelievers, if you have a husband and a wife and children that are biologically theirs in a single marriage, that is a stabilizing force in society. But if discipleship simply included these two elements, we'd be no different than such a family or, or even some civic organizations. And I just want to give you a quote by the current commander-in-chief of the VFW. He said, The first mission is to boost membership, which is the lifeblood of the VFW. That is why I want all VFW members to recruit and mentor at least one new member this year. Mentorship is critical for future leaders, and it would have a profound effect. You know, those are true statements. Membership is lifeblood, and mentorship has a profound effect. But if, if, if that is all discipleship making is, then what we have imbibed, what we are promoting then, is simply a church growth methodology. Fourth, discipleship cannot and must not be equated with preaching. Why? Because preaching doesn't necessitate a relationship with the people to whom they are preaching. Preaching isn't an easy task. It is not for the faint of heart. You are dealing with the very words and will of Almighty God. It ought not to be taken lightly. It ought to be taken very, very soberly and seriously to be truly concerned with accurately and effectively communicating the Word of God is demanding and it is humbling. You will give of your life to others in preaching. But discipleship 
requires that you give your life. Do you remember the story about the farm animals and breakfast? All the farm animals got together and they wanted to show the farmer how much they appreciated his kindness and his care for them. So they all had a meeting and they decided that they, let's give him a big breakfast. I know Farmer John just loves breakfast. Okay, who's, who's going to bring what? Let's get a sign-up sheet here. Well, the cow said, hey, I got the milk. I'm bringing the milk. I'll bring cream for the coffee too. The chicken, chicken said, hey, I got eggs. I'll bring two, three dozen eggs. Got it, sweet. The horse said, hey, I'll, I'll bring my oats. I'll, I'll give you my oats. We'll have good, nice, hot pot of oatmeal. The dog, he said, hey, I'll, I'll clean up. I'll clean up after the meal. Uh, the cat, I, I really don't know what the cat did, but the, the bees, the bees donated their honey. And then one of them said, hey, hey, pig, what about some sausage and bacon? Maybe a country ham. Well, the pig didn't take too kindly to that, and he just left squealing. You get the point here? Well, guess what? At the end of the limited commission in Matthew chapter 10, where the practice round, so to speak, that Jesus is sending out His disciples to to get some practice in disciple-making, at the end of that He says, He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And then this is repeated again in chapter 16 of Matthew. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This isn't put an extra five in the plate at church. Discipleship involves and necessitates community. Schaefer expressed this well when he said in speaking about Labrie, if you think what God has done here is easy, you don't understand. It is a costly business to have a sense of community. Labrie cannot be explained merely by the clear doctrine that is preached. It cannot be explained by the fact that it has been giving intellectual answers to intellectual questions. It has been costly. But even more poignantly than this, Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. One of the speakers at um, Shepherd's Conference in 2022, he had this to say regarding discipleship. Disciple-making requires more than mere preaching and teaching. Without preaching and teaching, there is no gospel. But our responsibility in the church is not just about preaching and teaching. The atmosphere of the early church, which we see very vividly in the book of Acts, but, but it's all throughout the New Testament, is one not only of standards and accountability and behavior and, 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 and thinking and uh, of community and relationship, 
There is indeed genuine concern for one another and a willingness to sacrifice and both greatly and ultimately. Mentoring is happening. Preaching and teaching is happening. And fellowship appears to be occurring on a daily basis. But that isn't all they did. It wasn't all family and food and fun and fellowship. MacArthur put it this way, The early Christians didn't isolate themselves in a corner and talk about doctrine. They got out and saturated their communities with the gospel message. And that's often where the problem lies. You know, Daniel the prophet, he spoke of this commission when he said, The saints will receive and possess the kingdom. Christ has given us the kingdom. He's given us the kingdom. But either we don't believe it, that is, we're along with those, some of the disciples, and we're doubting, we doubt it, uh, or we misunderstand it. Again, going back to that Acts passage, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom? Or we don't desire it. We don't really want to be Christ-like and engage. And I'm afraid we're too much like Jonah. We'd rather go on a cruise. We'd rather say, let me move to the other side of the world. I'd rather have God's enemies judged than saved. And besides, it's just too hot to go to Assyria. All the sand, there's not enough grass and trees. It's miserable. I don't really want to go there. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, if we have died with Christ, then we believe that we shall also be live with Him. And therefore present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. We say with Isaiah, Here am I! Send me! What does it mean to be a disciple? It means you're a Christian. What does it mean to go and make disciples? It means that in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, you show yourself an example of all who believe. It means that you begin at home. It means that your speech will be seasoned with salt so that it may give grace to the hearers. It extends into your community. It means that he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Listen, there are a thousand different ways to make disciples but they are all a part of your daily life, both individually and congregationally. It means that you are concerned about the increase of the kingdom of God. Remember Isaiah chapter 9? And of His government there will be no end. What does it mean to go and make disciples? Just read Matthew chapter 10. Go back and read it. 
do it carefully and recognizing that this is a limited commission, it's a practice round, and what you do in school isn't always the exact things you do in real life, but it's principles. You learn principles. And if you take Matthew chapter 10 and you interpret it very strictly, then you're going to end up with a, uh, with a skewed missiology. But go back and look for the principles of discipleship and disciple-making in, in Matthew chapter 10. And what you're going to find is that it means that you go where Jesus sends you. It means that you preach the gospel. The message that Jesus Christ came into the world to, to save sinners. It means that you give freely and receive gratefully. It means that you leave room for the wrath of God. It means that you exercise discernment, that you lean not on your own understanding, and that you follow Christ, even unto death, and that you only fear God. Why? Because you are joint heirs with Christ. Because you are co-missioned with Christ to make disciples. So he says to us, while you're going, make disciples. Go and make disciples. Well, God bless you.